Welcome to the Rap Report with Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretations and applications. This is the ministry of Striving for Eternity and the Christian podcast community. For more content or to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Now, I know that many of you who are married have absolutely no problems in your marriage. So this episode will be for a friend of yours because you have no problems whatsoever in your marriage. But if you have a friend who's struggling, this episode may be for them. I'm sure it's not for you, but we have a special guest, Dr. Danny Purvis with us. He is from Growth Project Radio. We're going to discuss his new book, called The Marriage Pyramid. So welcome, Danny. Hey, thanks, Andrew. It's, it's an honor to be on, on your show with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to chat with me here today. Well, first off, it would be proper for me to thank you for your service, and I want to talk about your, your Navy career to start. So you were, you were a chaplain in the Navy for 20 years? Yep, that's exactly right. Yep. And so what, what got you into the Navy? Why Navy? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I I, uh, I I try not to make it sound facetious and and uh, uh, and trying to find a, a Weasley way out of it by saying this is where God want me. But it, it it was completely it was completely up to him. I the the, the Navy chaplaincy, military chaplaincy uh, in general, specifically the Navy, was not on my radar screen at all coming out of uh, out of seminary. I went to uh, one of the seminaries I went to initially went to. Uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. I left there when I graduated, went to work for the uh, home, well, then called the Home Mission Board, now called the North American Mission Board, uh, for two years. As that was wrapping up, uh, I, uh, I was wondering what, we, what I was going to do next, what God was leading me to. And uh, it was really interesting uh, that, that the Navy, the uh, military chaplaincy, it just came up in a conversation, and I wasn't even thinking in terms of the Navy at all, because I had, when I, to help you know, as a lot of people do to help serve their country and, and go to school. I had joined the South Carolina Army National Guard. I'd been in the National Guard for six years and had finished my tour there. And so when I was looking at military chaplaincy, my natural inclination was to go back to a service that I was familiar with, which was the Army. But it was a completely closed door. Every single time I tried to reach out to somebody to talk to them about it, I never got phone calls back. I never got emails back. It was it was beginning to look like a, just a completely closed door. And then of all people, my mom uh, emailed me uh, at one point and said that she had had seen where the Navy was recruiting uh, military chaplains, and that maybe I should take a look at that. And I was thinking, yeah, right, the Navy. Here I am, Army guys. No way in the world they're going to get me in the Navy. Well, <laughs> it wasn't long after I made that initial phone call that that's exactly what ended up happening. God was completely in charge of that process from beginning to end. I made one phone call. They initiated. Uh, contact back with me, uh, got me, got, walked me through the paperwork, all the uh, all of the the stuff that you have to do to become a, anything having to do with the federal government has a lot of stuff attached to it, and so we had to walk us all the way through that stuff. And then the next thing you know, uh, I, I I get in and uh, and I'm going to chaplain school. Then I'm at my first duty station in 29 Palms, California, with uh, with First Marine Division out there. And uh, thinking I'll do my one or two tours and I'll go on with my life, and this will be kind of a fun chapter to remember. Uh, and uh, 20 years later, uh, I retired from there. So it, it was, uh, it, it's been an inter- it was an interesting journey. It was, God showed me a lot of really neat stuff in there. Uh, I enjoyed a lot of it. There's stuff I didn't enjoy too much about it. it you know, it's not a, not a whole lot of fun being separated from your family for months at a time, all the moves every few years. Uh, but uh, it, was, uh, it was a great opportunity. 
So you started off well in army and then you just, you went Navy. I had to go to the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how that worked out. And to this day, it, it really is interesting to me. I, I would have never dreamed in a million years I would have ended up with the Navy. I, I really didn't. Uh, it was not, to say it was on my, wasn't on my radar screen would be inaccurate because it wasn't anywhere close to that. Uh, it just shows you how amazing God is that he will work these things out, that it was, uh, it was the last thing I saw coming. Yeah, well, it's, it is a thing that prepared you really for a lot of what we're going to talk about today with your book. Oh, absolutely. The genesis of it came from my very first duty station. Yeah, well, what, and you describe that in the book. Let, let's actually, since that is pertinent to what we're discussing later, but why don't you talk about that now, and then we'll, we'll get to the book in, a, in another segment. But how did that first duty station well, really I was, uh, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to, to jump in there on you, but yeah, it was, um, it was really interesting. I was uh, very green, as you can probably imagine, uh, had never been a military chaplain before, had some, had some experience with the military in general, but not as a, not as a chaplain. And uh, so I was assigned to a, um, an artillery battalion, a Marine Corps artillery battalion. A lot of people don't know this, but the Marine Corps is actually part of the Department of the Navy. And so they don't have their own, Marine Corps doesn't have their own chaplains. They use Navy chaplains. So actually, of my 20 years in the Navy, 10 of it was actually spent with uh, Marine Corps units. And so my very first duty station was with an artillery battalion out in 29 Palms, California, uh, Marine Corps Air, Air Ground Combat Center out there. And um, the Navy at that time uh, had adopted a program, a premarital program called PrEP. I don't know if you're familiar with that, if you've ever heard of PrEP. Um, but uh, we were actually, they adopted that as the formal uh, premarital uh, program that we would use to help get young uh, Marines and sailors who were getting married uh, integrated into that lifestyle and to make sure they understand, you know, to give them a better chance at success because it was a force multiplier with the military. If, if, uh, if, a, uh, if a soldier or Marine, a sailor or Marines um, Marriage was doing well. That was a good thing for the, uh, for, the, for the Navy. If it wasn't going so well, it's not a good thing. So it had ramifications beyond just the interpersonal relationship between husbands and females. So the military had a vested interest in seeing these folks really doing well in their marriage. So we had we'd adopted PrEP. I went through the PrEP training at uh, the University of Colorado. They sent me out there for, uh, for a week and we went through the PrEP training. And so it, was, it wasn't very long before, well, after I got back, that I was inserted into the training uh, rotation there to, to do prep, to do sections of prep. And I had, never, I had never engaged with married couples or pre-married couples on that level before. I had never had the opportunity to talk to a, a large group of people, even though prep was designed specifically for people who were about to get married, it was also open to folks who had been married for a while. So we had a mixture of engaged couples and uh, folks who had been married for a while. And it was really the first time, you know, I, would, I guess I would have been about 30 at that point. That was really probably the first time in my life where I started being intentional about thinking about what marriage actually looks like, what a successful marriage actually looks like, and what does an unsuccessful marriage looks like, and you know, why are the unsuccessful marriages unsuccessful? Why are the good ones good? How, how does this all work? And so it, they sort of threw me into the, into the deep end of the pool and uh, I was looking at the prep stuff and I really liked it, but I thought there was some stuff that could have been added in there that I, I thought could have been even a little more helpful. And that's where, to be honest with you, that's where the marriage pyramid, marriage pyramid started. It, it was um, one of the very first uh, uh, prep classes I did. I introduced the marriage pyramid uh, in, not in the form that it's in now. It, is, it has undergone a lot of changes over the last 20 plus years. Uh, 
but uh, but that was the, that was the genesis of it. How in the world am I going to sit out there and uh, and and look at these these uh, these couples sitting across from me uh, and and communicate to them how important this is and how um, it, it, you just not people are just not do a good marriage. They're, they're just not. It, it, you have to work at it. There are things, there are landmines all over the place. There are things people don't think about. And so how is the how was the best way? at least I was thinking at the time, that was the best way that I can communicate to these folks kind of where they are and, and where they want to be and what are some of those, those obstacles out there. And that was, that was the genesis of the whole thing. Well, the thing that I've noticed in, with years of, of counseling and then specifically with military, two big things that I've noticed you end up dealing with with military, suicide and marriage. Yes. And it really, the military life does put a lot of strain on a marriage. And I think after 20 years of military counseling, you're going to learn and you're learning it in a secular environment. So you can't always appeal to them and say, this is what the Bible says, because not all of them care what the Bible says. That, that's true. And, and, and that's a great point you bring up. And I do want to make sure I clarify something that when, when how it works for lack of a better word, with me. I mean, every chaplain's a little bit different when it comes to these types of things. One of the things that we are actually re- were required to sign, it was, a, it was a document we were required to sign going into the Navy, as I was going into the Navy as a chaplain, is that I would not proselytize. Now, here's the interesting thing. It didn't define what proselytizing was. Uh, and so I left it to my conscience to decide what that actually meant. Um, and so if it was a, if it was a situation where people were forced to be there, a change of command, um, some sort of military function where they were ordered to be in the audience, uh, then I would not take advantage of that situation and, and try to influence them necessarily overtly with the gospel. Um, if that makes any sense, but, but the caveat that the moment they voluntarily walk into my office and seek out my counsel, then I will counsel them from the perspective that my denomination expected me to have and that my faith tradition and conscience uh, uh, expected me to have. And so every single person, every single couple that came into my office, they got the God stuff. Now, they didn't always like it, <laughs> and, yeah. and they didn't always respond to it, but they, act, but they got it. And I didn't, I didn't beat that horse if I, if I got the sense, and, and you know as well as I do, you've done counseling, you've talked to people, you know when people are receptive to what you're saying and you know when they're not. Um, so they would get the basics of, it, of, of what, uh, what a marriage is supposed to look like from a biblical standpoint. But if their eyes started to glass over and it was clear they were not interested, uh, I gave that to them and then I would move on to other stuff as well. But I always tried my very, very best to make sure that anybody who voluntarily walked into my office for any type of counseling got that aspect of it, whether they wanted it or not. But like I said, I didn't, I didn't cram it down their throats. I used the, I let the Holy spirit guide me in those situations. There were people who were oftentimes very open to that. They liked it. They wanted to hear more. And there are others that were completely closed off. And I, and I, and then I addressed those couples uh, as, uh, as, as, as I needed to. But being in the military, there are certain things that are required and therefore there were probably times that you ended up having to counsel someone not by their choice, not by your choice, but by the military's choice because they needed it. And yet they really weren't there to hear the truths of God's word. They were there probably (laughs) because they're forced to. Because they were in trouble. Most of them. Look, the reality is, and and this is, this is not hyperbole. I would say of all the people that I counseled, 
whether they were married couples, whether they were individuals, regardless of the circumstances, of all of the people who walked through my door through 20 years, and we're talking about hundreds upon hundreds of people, I would say a good 80% of them plus had no they, they didn't want to hear anything about God. It had nothing to do with God in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it was, at times, to be, I'll be honest with you, it was a little discouraging. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, I, I, they always got it. They always got some aspect of it. Uh, they always understood where I was coming from in my perspective. I would always tell them. I, there were certain things I couldn't help them with because the only way I could help them with it is if, if it came from a Christian perspective or specifically a biblical perspective, and, and you don't want to hear that. So I'll try to help you over here with this, but this is going to be the better answer. So it was always a little bit of a, of a juggling act, but I would say, well, easily 80%, maybe more. I may be, I may be underestimating, but easily 80% of the people that came in to see me had no they didn't want to deal with God in any way, shape, or form. Now, the reason I bring that up is because as you work in your book on marriage, you work on this book, it's called The Marriage Pyramid. It's not a pyramid structure, by the way. <laughs> yes. You know, Cole, it's funny you should mention that. It, that never dawned on me. I was talking to uh, our mutual friend, Colleen Sharp, on Theology Gals. I was, I was on with her, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and she had mentioned it to a friend of hers, and she said she had to explain to her it wasn't what her friend thought, and Colleen was just going to let it go. And I was like, no, you got to tell me, what did she think it was? And, and it was that, it was that I, I never crossed my mind that people well, think of it as a, as a, like a hierarchical structure of the, of the, uh, of the marriage relationship. I, it never crossed my mind. Well, see now Colleen's, uh, the, the woman who had issue with the name thought of it differently than what I thought, which Colleen had said to me that there was a lady in her group that had an issue with the name of the book. And I thought marriage pyramid, the pyramid, like, so it's a pyramid scheme. Like that's how, where I went, like a Ponzi type scheme. And where they had an issue was where they had some folks who are from some church backgrounds where the men have complete say in marriage and have the wives have none. I, I was counseling a woman this week. Um, her husband controls all the money. Mm. He doesn't let her have any friends. She, she goes to church, but she's not allowed to talk to anybody. He can, he takes vacations on his own. And from that structure where they have the idea that everything is about the male, then, yeah, I can see that they have that. But you had a totally different reason for the name that we're going to get oh, into. Drastically different. Yes. As a matter of fact, I didn't even foresee that. It was amazing. Like I said, when I was talking to Colleen, she had mentioned this lady and then she was just going to let it go. And I said, I, I can't let this go. You got to tell me what she thought. Uh, and I was, I was flummoxed, to be honest with you. I never crossed my mind that it would be interpreted that way. But it just shows you the filters that we have, which is why I make the book, and we'll talk about this later as we get more into it, but, but it's why I made the book as general as I did, because I tried to make it applicable to the filters that we all have in front of us. Every single one of us speaks through a filter and we hear through a filter. And our filters are not all the same. And so I tried to make it general enough that it would be adaptable to all of these different filters, but also specific enough to be helpful regardless of what the filter is, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and, and the thing is, and this is why I want to bring this up for folks, is to realize that you were approaching this subject, whether you thought in the beginning, of, oh, this is what I'm going to build a lot of my, my counseling on, but mm -hmm. you didn't plan that. But over years of counseling, mostly to people who don't want to hear, they're forced to listen, they do not want to hear the Bible's perspective on it. Right. And yet using biblical principles 
to help them in their marriage. Now, the reason that becomes really helpful for folks is because guess what? There's a lot of Christians who want the Bible, but they don't always want to actually listen. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one thing to, to hear someone say, this is what a biblical marriage looks like. It's another to actually put it into practice. And you had people who don't even want the biblical perspective, but then are forced to put it into practice. Yeah. And I think that's going to be an encouragement to folks who are struggling in a marriage, struggling with thinking that this could never be repaired. Yes. Here, Andrew, here was the, here was the thing that was so, so demoralizing to me for a long time, uh, for years when I first started doing this, because the, people ask, you know, what do military chaplains do? I would say the vast majority of the time, in, at least from my, my perspective and the ones, the guys that I, that I worked with, the folks that I worked with over the last 20 years will tell you probably the same thing. The vast majority of what I did was counsel people. That was the vast majority of my work was counseling. And of that counseling, the vast majority of that was probably um, marriage counseling, relationship counseling. So I, I, I would see these couples, they would come in and we would begin talking and they would be coming into me. Unfortunately, usually I was the last resort. By the time they had gotten to me, a lot of times, and this was this was really too bad, by the time they had gotten to me, not only had the bridges been burned, but the ashes been gathered up and burned again. So it was really difficult to to be in that spot to try to help them. But one of the things that used to it used to really bother me, still does, but because I'm not as involved with it as I used to. But one of the things that used to bother me so much is that I would have these couples and these couples come in, and I would know from the beginning that they're on the verge of divorce. That this is really kind of a this is a hail mary. This is the last one that they're going to try to do to make this thing work. And I would just let them talk. I try to do what a good counselor does and listen way more than I talk. And I would just let them go. I would pick one and I'd say, "Tell me what's going on." And they would go on for a while, and then I'd stop them and say, "Okay, now you tell me what." what do you think is going on? And I would listen to the issues and I would sit there and listen for 45 or 50 minutes at times while these, while these folks are telling me this. And at the end of that, I'm thinking to myself, I haven't heard one thing that should be leading to these people to divorce. Not one. I can't hear one single thing that I would point to and say, that's the thing I can understand now while they're on the edge of, uh, on the verge of divorce because of, of this thing that they keep saying, keep bringing up. I would hear that over and over and over again. Uh, and yet that so many of them would end up divorced when they didn't have to be. Uh, and so I, I knew then I had to start developing my ideas and how to address these situations in a, in a more unique way, because they think that this is that this thing that they're going through, these things that they're going through are fatal and they're not but they think they are. And so how in the world do I, am I going to be able to get them to see that they're not as fatal as they think they are? And, and, uh, and it was a very difficult, difficult thing to do. So when we get back from this break, you went to a school that would be kind of surprising being as conservative as you are. And I want to talk about that because you went to a school that you, people don't think of as well conservative from a person who, as you are, quite conservative. So I want to talk about the, where you went to seminary, where you got your doctorate, and why after this. Justification. This theological term is legal in nature, but to understand it, we must first understand our legal predicament. Because we have sinned against God, i.e. broken His law and thought, word, and deed, we are guilty in His court and must be punished as lawbreakers. You see, since we have sinned against an infinitely holy God, we deserve an infinite punishment. Enter justification. This is the one-time event when God declares the lawbreaker, us, righteous in his court. 
It's been said that to be justified means that God sees me just if I'd never sinned. This is more appropriately stated. God sees me just if I'd been Jesus. See, Jesus lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died and was resurrected on the third day. In this, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law and paid the fine for our law-breaking. If we repent and believe in him, God credits his righteousness to our account. Only then are we seen just if I'd been Jesus. This has been another growing moment with Robert Houghton. For more information, visit growthproject.org. Two, two, two great books and one website. Visit strivingforeternity.org. There are two books that I would like to recommend you purchase. What they, meaning people who aren't Christians, other religions believe, and what we believe. Systematic Theology Made Simple. Both are great resources, especially if you plan on witnessing to somebody. Strivingforeternity.org. So, Danny, you are a conservative pastor. I, I know because I've talked with you off air plenty of times. Mm-hmm. But you went to, well, one of the most liberal schools in the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How cool is that, right? Yeah, let me, uh, let me, let me, it's funny, again, how God works these things out. It, to me, is just amazing. Um, let me take you back a little bit. I was in uh, the Patuxent River Naval Air Station, which was in, in uh, southern, it was, still is, uh, in southern Maryland. And uh, I, I had a chapel at that point. That was the only time in my career I was actually assigned to a chapel. And that was so, as in a weird kind of way, it was the only time in my 20-year a career in the Navy where I actually kind of did the, the stuff a regular pastor does yeah. at, a, at a chapel program. We had Sunday school. We had, you know, anything that, that a normal, for lack of a better word, regular church would have. And, and I was assigned there for three years, uh, preached regularly, obviously, since I was the, uh, I was the guy there. And uh, it was interesting. I had always sort of made it a, um, a point not to check my email. I would be in my office before the service started. And it's also my work office, obviously, where at, at, at my office at work, the chapel was right across the street. Uh, and I always try to, I always had a very hard and fast rule that I would not look at my email before I went in to, to preach because I would see something. I knew I would see something in the email that would like, throw me off during the service and I didn't want to, well, I broke that this one particular time. I don't know why I did. And I pulled up my email and had gotten a, uh, an email from uh, the, uh, the chief of chaplain's office. And that's as a chaplain, that's either usually really good news or really bad news. And so I, cause I had, there would have no reason for them to email me. And uh, so I, I pulled it up and it said, you know, congratulations, you have been selected for the funded graduate education program. I had no idea what the funded graduate education program even was. I, 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 I did not know. And so, um, uh, the following Monday, the next day, I went into work, uh, uh, I called the number on there. Anyway, to make a m- more convoluted story, hopefully a lot less so, uh, I was selected. I was one of three chaplains in the entire Navy Chaplain Corps that year that was selected for a program I didn't sign up for, by the way. You usually have to submit a package. I didn't submit a package. To this day, I don't know how I got selected, uh, but got selected to attend um, graduate school for a year to get another master's degree, a master's of theology. And I had, there were several schools that the Navy had contracts with 
to to for this program, and one of them was was Princeton Theological Seminary, and that was the seminary uh, that I chose to go to, uh, and uh, it was quite an experience. So I, it was nice. It was a good gig if you can get it right. I got paid my salary, and and uh, got paid to go to school for a year to get another master's degree, and it was it was an amazing experience. But you're right, there was a reason why I picked uh, I picked Princeton. Well, first off, you came to not only a liberal school, but you came to my state. And you can't get much more liberal than Jersey. Uh, California tries. Yeah, and, and I was there too. So. <laughs> but yeah, so obviously you did not get along with your professors, I'm sure. I, I actually was going to do my PhD. I was looking at Princeton. Mm-hmm. Similar reasons as you did for going to Princeton. I, I was thinking of doing my doctorate at Princeton because of the fact that especially me doing a lot of ministry on the streets, when you get these unbelievers who think, oh, well, you just went to some religious school. If you say Princeton, it carries some weight to that. Sure it does. With the unbelievers. But the big stumbling block that I saw was I was going to have to pair up with a professor and really be doing researching that of something they're an interest in. And I'm like going, yeah, I want to do, if I'm doing my doctorate, it would be in like something about hypocrisy in mm. Christianity in the Bible. And I don't see Princeton being a place where they're going to want me to talk about hypocrisy. Probably not. No, that would be my guess. Yeah, I, I will tell you, I had a little bit of an ulterior motive there. Uh, one of my absolute favorite theologians in the history of the world, Cornelius Van Til. Uh, I don't know if you how much you know about Van Til, but Van Til actually went to Princeton Seminary. And so that was... Uh, uh, it was when it was a little bit different than <laughs> than it is now, uh, but um, yeah, I, I and we keep talking about the reason, but neither one of us have, have quantified that. The reason that I decided that I wanted to go to Princeton Seminary is because when I went to get my undergraduate degree, I went to a place that believed pretty much like me. When I went and got my Master of Divinity at Southwestern, I went to a place that that pretty much believed like I believe. I got my PhD from Regent University, and you know I'm a little uh, not exactly. Uh, completely in line with those guys theologically, but for the most part, especially the important things, I believe pretty much like uh, like they do. I wanted to go to a place where I was going to be challenged in my thinking and be surrounded by people who did not think like I thought. I wanted to be sharpened. I wanted to be uh, constantly bombarded with the thinking that um, that would come from from that perspective. Uh, and there, it was a great experience, Andrew. I loved every second of it. I really did. I had a lot of fun. I had this one professor in particular, by the way, who we could not have been more different. I mean, we could not have been more different, and we actually got to be very good friends. He encouraged me to start a blog, and he said, the stuff you have to say is really important, and you need to, you need to get that out. That was really interesting coming from him uh, since we, like I said, we had absolutely nothing in common theologically, culturally, politically. No, nowhere did, did we meet in any way, shape, or form. But we had a respect for each other that superseded that, and we were able to talk to each other without name-calling and without getting into arguments, without doing all that other stuff. It was an absolutely phenomenal experience. Yeah, and when I went to seminary, I didn't agree completely in the doctrine of soteriology with my seminary. Um, and it just forced me to have to write my papers a lot stronger. And I I loved being a fundamentalist Baptist seminary. I had to do a paper on ecclesiastical separation. How far do you separate from other churches? And Mm. I still remember my professor saying, because I was supposed to be a complete separatist as a fundamentalist Baptist. Right. Right. Um, I still remember the, I got an A 
on the class, got, he gave me a paper where I got an A and his notes said, I really don't like your conclusion, but I cannot argue against any of the points that you made. Yeah, that, see, that was the part that, that I found so rewarding uh, in, going to, in going to Princeton Seminary. Um, most of the kids that were there were probably young enough to be my kids, pretty close to being young enough to be my kids. And so I didn't care so much about their conclusions as much as I cared how they got there. And so I constantly didn't, I never, almost never challenged them on their conclusions. I always challenge them on their thinking. How did you get there? Show me, basically, remember when we were kids in, in math class, show your work. Show me how you got there. Uh, because it sounds like to me you're just parroting something that somebody else says, and you haven't really thought about this on your own. What about this? Have you thought about that? And you could hear the crickets chirping most of the time. Because that's exactly, even though they were really bright kids, they were, they had not been taught to think. They'd just been taught to parrot what their professors, what their favorite writers, whatever the case may be, had said without giving any sort of thought to their, what they were saying at all. And, and so it was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. You know, I think I think many of those uh, students were on my Twitter feed this week when I I posted something, and it, it, you're right, they're just. Oh yeah, yeah. I saw that post. I thought you were a glutton for punishment. <laughs> well, I don't know what Twitter has had me like <laughs> in the block where I could I could put something and no one ever reads it, yeah. and all of a sudden I the one post that I put that got a ton of attention was when I just said if you you know if you go to a church where you have a female pastor it's not a church and she's not a pastor. And boy, did that blow up. And it did indeed. Yeah. I saw that. And they're all just parroting the same thing. And it's like, there's no verse that says that in the Bible. And I'm just giving the verse. It's like yes. here, first yes. Timothy two, two to 14. I just read it. You're reading into that. No, you're doing eisegesis. Uh, all I'm doing is reading the verse. Yeah. I'm not adding anything else in. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's, we, we are, we are, we have more access to information than we have ever had in our entire lives. And we are also stupider than we've ever been in our entire lives because we let other people do our thinking for us. Yeah. They, they will make a statement. They will, they will, they will, uh, some, some little sound bite, some little clip, something that sounds kind of cool or kind of good. And then everybody gloms onto that and then they keep repeating it. They keep parroting it without ever thinking about what I call, you know, the, the it's not specific, specifically what I call it, but it's one of the unchanging, uncompromising laws of the universe, the law of unintended consequences, second and third order effects. Nobody ever thinks about that. They just spout this stuff out without ever thinking about the ramifications of what it is to hold that particular worldview because they've never thought about it. They just heard it. They liked the way it sounded, maybe aesthetically, uh, but there's, there's nothing to it. It's, it's like when Job was talking to his friends and he says, your proverbs are, what did he call them? Your, your, your platitudes are proverbs of ash or something like that. It, it, that's exactly what it is. They're just it's ash. There's nothing to it. And, and so I wanted those kids to think. And so I would challenge them to think about what they were saying. And I would tell them, I don't care. I know you, you're going to come to a different conclusion than me. I don't care about that. I just care about how you get there. Are you thinking or are you just repeating what somebody else says? And going to a seminary like Princeton is going to do that. It's going to force you to have to think better. It's going to force you to have to write better. Yes. To be more articulate. And, and that then is going to help when you're, after all these years in the military, having worked with so many military people with marriages, then you bring into that the fact that you have to be more articulate. You have to make stronger arguments. That leads into what I, I want to bring up after this commercial is your book. I, I want to spend some time talking about the book, why you wrote it, and we'll talk about what, what's in there after this break. 
Looking for strategies that will help you engage in meaningful conversations with members of the Mormon Church? Well, if so, take a look at Sharing the Good News with Mormons, a new book produced by Harvest House Publishers and edited by Mormonism Research Ministries' Eric Johnson and Sean McDowell. Sharing the Good News with Mormons includes 24 helpful essays from two dozen Christian apologists, scholars, and pastors. Pick up your copy at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore or order directly from mrm.org. And you can also get that book at strivingforeternity.org in our store. I am one of the 20-plus authors. It was a pleasure to be part of that. So let's talk about your book on marriage, the marriage pyramid. Now, one of the things I liked is right from the get-go, you talked about marriage in laying a foundation. You talked about it as a picture of God with his people. And I, right off the bat, that grabbed me because so much of the counseling I do when I counsel people for marriage, I'm going back to that picture of what our marriage represents. Why is it so important? I, I had a guy, I felt bad about this because I hadn't met the person I was going to be out at his church and speaking at the church where he attends. And you know me, I like to joke around. We were joking around on Facebook and he made a comment about my wife. Just in a joking way, sure. It was it was putting her down, and I I guess I was a little bit too strong, but I just said I don't joke about my wife. We we do not do that. My wife is not the butt of a joke. And I said, listen, I know we don't really know each other that well, but marriage represents the relationship between God and his people. I would no sooner want to make fun of my wife or have her the butt of a joke than I would want Christ to make me the butt of a joke. Absolutely. And I, I, I guess it came on too strong because when I went to the church before the church that this guy was at, the pastor's wife was like, I was so glad you put that guy in his place. And I was like, oh, so I contacted him. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I came on too strong. Forgive me. Like, no, brother, I didn't know that view that you had. And you know what? It really helped me. But you had that same view, and it really was refreshing to see that you start right off with the fact that we have to see that this marriage, whatever marriage it is, no matter how bad it may seem, is still a reflection of God and his church. Yeah, it's really fascinating. We have, uh, and I mean we as evangelicals, one of the we've made a lot of mistakes, and I've been a part of it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers. I, I was I was in seminary at Southwestern when the whole church growth movement seekers stuff started out, and I, I tell you what, they had me hook, line, and sinker. I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, it was exciting, it was new, and and uh, so I've I, I've repented of that and and uh, and and have moved on. So I'm not I'm not saying this from a standpoint of saying I haven't been a part of the the problem because I think I was for a little while. Uh, but we have made a lot of mistakes over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that we have made and continue to make uh, as evangelicals is allowing the world to define certain constructs for us. And, and one of the things that we have allowed the world to do uh, is to define marriage for us. We, we have begun to more assimilate uh, the world's view of marriage as opposed to a biblical view of marriage, which is why, unfortunately, I think Christian marriages, at least from my understanding and, and what little research I've done on this, fail at almost as high a rate as secular marriages do. And so um, that was the one thing I wanted to make sure up front is that 
I, one of the things I learned in my PhD work, operationalize your constructs, right? You have to know what you're talking about. If I say the word marriage, then this is, yeah, people have to know when I talk about marriage, this is what I mean. This is what I'm talking about. It was the first institution God ever created. Uh, there's got to be a reason for that. Uh, there's a level of importance to it that we don't ascribe to it today, even, unfortunately, even in the evangelical church. Um, we treat it more as a rite of passage, cultural rite of passage, than we do anything else. Uh, until we actually start seeing it the way God wants us to see it, it's always going to be disposable to a certain extent. Uh, and so that's the thing that I had to, I've, I've been trying to fight all of these years and, and, uh, and what led up to the, uh, to the writing of the book. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that that foundation is essential because we are having the case where the Christian church, and I know the stat that says they're failing at, at, at Christian marriages as much. I, there's one thing that I've noticed in those. What you end up seeing is they don't ask the question of when someone was divorced, before or after they became a Christian. That's interesting. Many people become a Christian because of a divorce. Mm. And so when they give those, st those stats, that's one thing I always try to see if they provide the data. I go back now, there was one research poll that said that marriage, secular marriages and Christian marriages was only off by a, a small percentage. It was like 51% of Christian marriages fail. But when I dug into the data, I realized that they had asked when they were divorced, when they became a Christian. And it was like 75 to 80% of the, the divorces occurred prior to salvation. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Then it's a it's a gigantic difference, and you know it's really fascinating. In all the research that I've been doing uh, on marriages over the last 20, 20 plus years, it is not as easy as you think it is to find out what the divorce rate is, is in this country. the uh, the The number that's tossed around all the time is fifty percent, right? Fifty percent of all marriages end up uh, in divorce. That is almost a almost a hundred percent not true. Uh, it was based on some faulty data back in the 70s. The, the, divorce, the real divorce rate in this country has never been 50%, according to uh, the statistics that I've seen. The people who are really crunching the numbers uh, has never been 50%. It got, it got close in the 70s, and that was why that was that projection was if it stayed on, this, on that course, it would end up that one every, out of every two marriages would end in divorce. The real divorce rate is somewhere, even among everybody, is, is somewhere around 35 to 40%, which is still too high, uh, but it's not the 50% that we hear. It's, it's interesting that, that we can you know, collate this data about almost anything out there, but this one's a little harder to nail down. And so what, began, what I began to do, and, and one of the coolest jobs that I ever had, which is kind of the genesis of, of, of the entire book and, and you know, how, how it ended up in the form that it's in now, uh, the last year and a half that I was in the Navy, I was, I was given a, an amazing job. It was, it was one of those things that was a great way to end a career uh, as, as far as I was concerned. Uh, the Navy has this thing called Credo. It's, it's, a, it's a retreat program, Chaplain's Religious Enrichment Development Operation. I, the, the, anyway, it doesn't matter what it stands for. Uh, but it's a, it's a series of retreats of which marriage retreats are just one part of them. They have these things called personal growth retreats, and they have children's retreats and family retreats and all these other things. But by far, by far, the most popular credo retreat uh, in the Navy today is, it was when I was in, I'm sure it's still the same today, uh, is, are the credo retreats. And I had taken part in credo marriage retreats earlier in my career and throughout my career. But my last year and a half in the Navy, almost two years in the Navy, uh, that's all I did. I was the credo chaplain at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina which means that's all I did. Almost every single weekend, I did marriage retreats. 
and it was a blast. I had a great time. And so what I would do is, is, you know, develop the program, which I, which I did. I didn't use the canned stuff that they were doing. I, I basically just I did it on my own. I, I started, I scrapped everything and went back from the beginning and said, okay, what do these folks based on these, these, these years and years of experience with these couples, what do they need to know? What do they need to hear? What do they need to understand? And so we talked about, we, we it would be a, um, it would be a Friday night. We'd usually get started around six o'clock, go to about eight. Then we'd get up, we'd go all day Saturday until about four 30 or five in the afternoon. And then we'd finish up Sunday morning and everybody would go their, their way. And I would have young couples in there. I would have older couples in there. I'd have couples who had just gotten married, couples who'd been married for 40 years. It was, it was really a very cool experience. And the last thing that I would do on Saturday before I turned them loose for the date night on Saturday night is I would do this thing that I ended up calling the marriage pyramid. Uh, and that was where, uh, that's, that's where, you know, this kind of came full circle with, with the book. And it is to this day by far that, the, that was what I got the most response from. When, when I got finished with that subject, people did not want to stop talking about it. People said, you need to write a book about this. I had other chaplains who would sit in on it and they would, you know, I would draw these drawings up on the board to try to point out what they were, they were taking pictures of it and, and all that. That was the part that got the biggest response. So let's let's discuss the pyramid itself, because we, we've been talking about it, <laughs> saying what it isn't. Sure. Let, let's go through, starting at the bottom, go through each of the points of the pyramid so people have an idea of what the structure of this book is going to be, why it's going to be helpful to them. Well, I think one of the main reasons, and I know you just said we just talked about what it's not. We're going to add one more thing into what it's not so that people are, do not misunderstand. Uh, this is not a four-step process to having a better marriage. Those things do not exist. There is no such thing as a multi-step program that all you have to do is implement these steps and you're going to have a good marriage. I just don't, People are too different. Circumstances are too different. Personalities are too different. Backgrounds are too different. There is no, these are not steps. Well, I've got to do step one and two, then two, then three and four. And if I complete these steps, then I'm going to have the marriage that God wants me to have. That was not my intent uh, in writing this. There are no steps in here. It's really more of a barometer the way I look at it. It's more of a barometer than anything else. It kind of shows me, hopefully, where I am in this, uh, in this strata, for lack of a better word, uh, that sort of culminates in the end of the upper goal that we want to, which is at the top of the uh, top of the pyramid. But but um, um, so I, I just didn't want people to think this is a okay. I got to do steps one, two, three, and four, and I'll be good. I'll have the I'll have the marriage that I want. It doesn't work that way, and it's it's it, it'll make more sense when people read it. But I just wanted to make sure I gave that uh, that little bit of um, uh. Uh, preamble to it before we before we move on and uh and i don't know how much you want me to to you know get into this there's the structure of it uh i uh, i borrowed from the the uh, the pyramid standpoint i borrowed from abraham maslow and his hierarchy of needs i was always fascinated by his view of uh of human psychosocial development uh and the idea that you can go up and down on the pyramid it's not okay, I've got this bottom one done, then I go to the next one, then I get those, that one done, I got those two done. This is something that you can actually move up and down in at any time in your life, depending on what's going on. And it's the same thing with, with the marriage. So I looked at what I thought was going to be, what, what needed to be the, the foundational issue. And then when that, that was met, for lack of a better word, not met all the time, but predominantly met, then 
there would have to be another area that would the next area up would would need to be satisfied for lack of a better word in order for the third one to 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 uh, take place and then in order for the top one to take place you'd have to have all the other three uh, in place as well and and so that's sort of the idea i had behind it because it'll make more sense when you're uh, when you're actually reading the book um but i actually it's really funny the I have changed the shape over the years. I have had added more layers to it. I've taken some off. I've switched them around before I finally uh, settled on this. And so what I decided to do was saying, okay, what is the what is the base thing that we need for a marriage? The absolute bare minimum to have any kind of marriage at all. And of course, it made all the sense in the world that it would be love. And so that began on the pyramid. But here's the thing. Again, one uh, the warning that I gave just just a few moments ago about not letting the world define certain constructs for us. We have more than done that with this idea of love. I cannot. It is has been mind-boggling to me that as believers, we will speak about love in language that is more closely associated with what the world says about love than about what God's word has to say about love. And so even though it does, it, it's, it's not, it's not mind blowing, earth shattering news that the base of the pyramid should be love. It all depends on what you mean when you say that word. Again, operationalize your construct. What are we talking about when we say love? Are we talking about the world's version of love? Are we talking about God's version of love? Are we talking about a mixture of the two? Does it depend? But here's the point I try to make. And, you know, again, we, we don't want to take up too much time here on, on each one of these. But here's the main point that I was trying to make in that bottom level of the pyramid is that the love that we're talking about has to be understood in light of what God says about love because he didn't create love. He is love. So without tapping into the very source of love, we're never going to understand what that means. What we have done, in my view, of the, again, of the years that I've been doing this, in my view, what we've done is we have believed the world's lie that love is about 99.9% .9 of feeling. And so what happens as a result of that is we will treat it as a feeling. It is only as viable as it is how I feel about it at that particular time. Yeah, so <clears throat> we move up from love, though, because yeah. I want to I go through each of these points. So we move up from love, which, and I do appreciate that for folks to realize that this isn't a step-by-step -step thing. Yes, yeah. So, yes, you can't say, okay, I got the love thing down. Now I need to move on to the next one. That's not what I mean. It's having a proper understanding of these things. And like I said, before we move on, I think it's really important that we, we touch on this before we move on. This idea about love not being a feeling. Love is expressed in feelings. We have a lot of feelings associated with them. But the problem is we talk about love as it's a feeling. Then what happens when we don't feel the feeling? What happens when that feeling, the, the little warm and fuzzies that we have with love, which are there and they're great and they're wonderful, what happens when they go away? I've had, you know how many couples I've had in my, in my office? Uh, we just fell out of love. I'm not in love with this person anymore. What that means is they don't have the little warm and fuzzy. And so therefore, if I don't have the warm and fuzzy, even our language talking about love gives us an out. Right? I was an English major in, in, in my undergraduate degree. Well, I, I believe words mean things. And so when somebody says, I fell in love, it almost sounds like they were walking around minding their own business. And they fell in love just like they would fall into a hole they didn't see. And if I fall into love, then I can fall out of love. It's not my fault. 
No more than it was my fault to fall into love. And well, so we give where, ourselves an out on this. I think this is where when we look at the way scripture lays it out, I mean, you, you had arranged marriages. People didn't fall in love. They chose to love. That's exactly right. Love is an act of the will. It is a decision to love. When Jesus says, love your enemies and, and pray for those who would do you harm and hate you, I guarantee you he was not talking about the warm and fuzzy feeling that comes with love. He was talking about a decision to love somebody who was unlovable. And to be honest with you, the reality is we're all unlovable. And so that's what said this is such that's why the, that 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 construct has to be defined within the parameters that God has given us in his word, not based on some you know feeling that happens to be floating around out there. Because I tell you, if I'm really angry with my wife and she's really angry with me, I can tell you something. At that moment, I ain't feeling the warm and fuzzies. And so if I don't feel that, then we'll, it must not be in love anymore because I don't feel like I'm in love anymore. And so we have got to get away from describing love almost exclusively as a feeling and more as a conscious act of the will rooted in God's word. Okay, so what's on this pyramid, the foundation is love. What's yeah. the next? The next one is safety. This is the one that really, to me, was a, a, it was a, it was a huge eye-opener for me. And when I, when I would do them in the retreats, um, this is the one that would, would garner a lot of attention because it's not what people normally think it is. When you hear safety, um, people almost immediately think physical safety, which is important, and it is included in here. Obviously, you're not going to grow with somebody in marriage if somebody's being physically harmful to you. Uh, so, but, but that's not what I'm necessarily talking about here. Um, I'm talking more emotional safety that is directly linked to the same reactions we would have if somebody threatened our physical safety. And I'll tell you, Andrew, I'll tell you where this really hit home for me, where this really began to make a lot of sense to me. And I began to put it into the marriage pyramid and started having a huge reaction from people who had never thought of it this way because I had, before God showed this to me, I had never before. But to, when you decide to love someone, let's go back to that love thing again. When you decide to love someone, you choose to love someone. That is an extremely, extremely vulnerable position to be in. My wife and I, in June, will celebrate our 30th uh, anniversary, okay? But we've known each other since we were six years old. I've got our first grade class picture. She's standing two people down from me. So I've known my wife since I was six years old. She's been a part of my life in some way, shape, or form for that long. But we've been married for, we'll be married for 30 years here in, in, uh, in June of this year. I am extremely vulnerable to her. When I choose to love her, I choose to share everything about myself. When you spend that much time with somebody, even if you choose not to share certain things with you, she's going to see them anyway. In other words, I am more vulnerable to her than I am to anybody else on the planet. There's nobody that knows me better on this planet than my wife does. She knows what I'm afraid of. She knows what my failures are. She knows the things that keeps me up at night. She knows my weaknesses. She knows where the bodies are buried, figuratively, by the way. She knows all of the most horrific things about me that anybody could possibly. She knows what frightens me more than anything else on the planet. And so what began to dawn on me is, isn't there a name for the person that could, because what I could, the conclusion I came to with, there's nobody on the planet that could hurt me more than she could if she wanted to. Not even my kids could hurt me as much as my wife could if she wanted to. And isn't, isn't there a name for somebody like that? And, and, and the name for that person is that they're the most dangerous person in the world to me. 
And, and my wife, this was a, I, I can't tell you, Andrew, how this opened my, my, my mind and my heart that I was married to the person who was potentially the most dangerous person in the world to me. And what kind of impact have on a marriage? Does, does that make any sense? Well, a lot of people don't think about it that way because they don't want to think that, that their spouse could be dangerous to them. But the way you lay it out in the book, it's because of the vulnerability. And what I really got out of that chapter was there's, because this is a, a, maybe a different word for it, but trust. Yes, that's it. That's exactly that's, right. What is really at the heart of this is yes. how much trust we're going to put in one another. That's because exactly right. Making yourself vulnerable, how are they going to use it? And you, you laid that out of how people could abuse that trust and then how that when you have that trust, it, it builds a security. Mm. And that's how you laid it out. That's exactly right. And that's the safe issue. I feel safe with my wife. But what happens if I don't? See, that, that's what I would see. Remember when I mentioned earlier that you had, I had all these couples that were, in, that were on the verge of divorce, and I could not for the life of me figure out why they were this close to divorce when there was none of what I call the big three, uh, substance abuse, physical abuse, and adultery. I, that's the terminology I use for those three. I call them the big three. I dealt with those, but not nearly as much as you might think. So why in the world were people on the verge of divorce? And so many times it was because of this safety issue, because they were placing their trust into someone that all of a sudden was beginning to, and it could happen in such subtle ways, such subtle ways, the, the worst thing that my wife could do to me, the absolute worst thing that my wife could do to me right now was to end this, is to end our, our relationship. That would hurt me more than anything else she could possibly do to me. And so as a result, what ends up happening is that if I say something in the course of an argument, or she might say something in the course of an argument that might hint at the fact that this is going to happen, then the, this weird metamorphosis takes place. She becomes, she, she transfers from being, uh, transforms from being um, the person who is potentially the most dangerous person in the world to me to somebody who actually is. So if, if she, if she says things like, uh, if she threatens divorce, or if I threaten her to divorce her, or even using more innocuous phrases that we don't think about the power of these words, I don't know how much longer I can take this. I can't keep going like this. I understand the frustration behind those phrases. I do. I really, really do. And I've seen it. I've experienced it. I, I've got it. I understand that. But people have to understand what they are communicating to their spouse when they make statements like that because they're threatening, at least implicitly threatening to end the relationship. I don't know how much longer I can keep going like this means I'm not going to keep going like this much longer. And so we say these things in our frustration. We say these things in our anger. And, and it may be justifiable anger or frustration. I got that. Don't, again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But when we say things like that, that spouse who is potentially the most dangerous person in the world actually then becomes the most dangerous person in the world. And then what do we do as a result of that? Well, we're going to feel safe. That's just what we do. That's a natural reaction. I mean, if I'm on a boat and I can't swim and somebody throws me over the side, and I land within just a little bit of arm's length of a flotation device. I don't sit and have to sit there and think and wonder and, and bargain with myself about what I should do next, right? And my natural reaction, whether I can swim or not, is to clamor as best I can to that safety ring, to try to get there as best as I possibly can. 
It's the same thing that happens in a marriage relationship. When your spouse then becomes the most dangerous person to you, you are going to feel safe because that's what that's how you are wired. We are wired to want to feel safe. And if we have to feel safe at the expense of the other person, we will do it. And, and the vast majority of the couples that I have dealt with in, in all the years that I, I've been doing this, the vast majority of them, safety is, is the area where they, they, they pretty much stay at. They, they struggle with that part more than they don't even get close to the other two because they can't get past the safety part because they get mad at each other. They start the arguing and then they let these words fly and somebody throws or walk out or make a statement like that. And all of a sudden that safety is just crushed. It is crushed and it is really hard to bounce back from that. And this is a thing that I tell, especially to youth when I'm in youth groups and things like this, they think, because again, as you said earlier, taking the world's mindset, and applying it to these principles, the world says you should date lots of people because it's going to make a better marriage. You know what you want in marriage. And I always tell youth, the more you date, the more problems you're introducing to your marriage, because the more people you date, you date someone, you get hurt, you break up. The next person you date, you're less secure. You don't want to be vulnerable. What do you do? You cover up. And so one of the things I ask people when I'm counseling them, one of the first questions I always ask marriage, married couples when they come into me is I ask them, how many people have they dated prior to marriage? Yeah, because that's going to tell me how vulnerable they've been willing to make themselves to their spouse. You get someone that's dated or especially both couples, both people dated many people. They usually are so have so many barriers up. They can't be vulnerable to the person. That's usually the problem. So let's let's move up. So the the base of the foundation is love. We move up to safety. What's the third? That's the obviously you're you're not going to feel safe with somebody you don't love. The next one, the next, the third part of the uh, the pyramid growth. You're not going to want to grow with somebody you don't feel safe with. So I kind of hope you're seeing how all of these sort of sort of work together. They're hierarchical in one sense, but they also, as I said before, we can kind of we can kind of drift up and down depending on the uh, on the circumstances. The last two growth and the and the idea of becoming one. These are the two that are much more difficult to to give examples of because of because people are so different but it's that idea of growing together of bonding of of, of that process where um I'll, I'll give you an example and, and i don't mean to i don't mean to belittle this believe me you know coming from my standpoint i, I did tourism in uh, uh in afghanistan um uh, with marines i i i'd seen guys unfortunately go home with missing limbs and and all the things that kind of go along with that stuff. So I don't mean to, to belittle this, but when I was, Kimberly was talking to somebody one time, I, um, uh, you know, I can count the time away from my family for the career that I had in the Navy in years. I mean, I've, that's just how much time I've spent away from them. Um, and Kimberly came to the point where she was trying to explain to people how she felt about when I wasn't there. Now, God sustained us through it, not only sustained us, but grew us through it and all that kind of, we saw a lot of good things come from it, but it was no fun. Nobody liked it. I, I, I hated leaving my family. They hated when I left. It was just part of the job. But Kimberly had gotten to the point where she was telling people it was almost like losing a limb. That, that not having me here kind of felt like think that that's what she would think like. Again, no disrespect to the people who have actually lost limbs. But the point is this idea that, that we are going together. Let me tell you, if I could give you an example of what that looked like to show you how innocuous this can look, how simple this can be. We're not talking about making these big plans. You, you mentioned earlier about the guy going on vacation by himself. And I'm not talking about the antithesis of that. But it, it, was, it was something that Kimberly and I uh, sort of um, 
discovered uh, a little bit later in life. We, we, uh, we have four kids. Um, our oldest now has a child of her own. Uh, and so I'm a, I'm a grandpa for the first time, which is, which is a really cool experience. I highly recommend it. Uh, and, uh, but we, we grew up with our, our four kids in the Navy. They all grew up in the, in the Navy with us. Uh, and, um, we, because we moved around a lot because we were around people that we really didn't know that well, we were really weird about just handing our, we, we didn't hire babysitters for lack of a better word. Okay. We just didn't bring people in to watch our kids while we went out and did things. And so as a result, we missed out on a lot of things. I would go to Marine Corps ball. I'd usually go by myself. She'd stay home with the kids and she would go do something and I would stay home with the kids. So we didn't really have things like date nights or, or anything like that. We, we were a little creative with, with that. And, but we just never really felt comfortable leaving our kids with the people that we didn't know who weren't family. Um, and so I remember when we were in North Carolina, right before I retired, this was about three or four years. Uh, and, uh, I got up one Saturday morning. It's going to sound like a silly story to, to most people, but it was, it was kind of a big deal for us, uh, because it taught me this lesson. Uh, I got up one Saturday morning and, uh, I went to, you know, I went to Kimberly and I said, you know, why don't we go get some breakfast? And, um, she said, okay, let me go get the kids up. And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> How about just me and you? And it was like, dare we, you know, and I'm thinking like kids like 20, you know, somebody's going to call the fire department if the house catches on fire. I think we're okay to go up to Hardee's and, 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 uh, and get a little breakfast. We went up there and had the time of our life. We just sat there across from each other and we just talked about important stuff, about non-important stuff. And as a result, that became a regular thing for us every Saturday. Every Saturday, and it wasn't because of, of, of Hardee's, I'll tell you that much. It had nothing to do with the place. Every Saturday, I ended, we, 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 we ended up going out and, and getting something. We were growing, even at that point in our marriage, that we had been married for a long time up to that point. We were growing in a way that we had not grown before because we were being intentional about it. We took everything else and we put it to the side and we focused just on each other. And just like I said, talked about little things, big things, medium things. It didn't matter. I looked so forward to Saturday mornings just so we could do that and, and experience that in a way that we never, we never had before. And, and, and let me tell you where it came full circle for me. And it was on my last deployment. Uh, I did multiple deployments while I was in the Navy, but oddly enough, I had never missed a Christmas, which was really weird. <laughs> it really weird. I had spent my entire career in the Navy and been gone a lot, and I'd missed birthdays, anniversaries, I've missed Thanksgiving, but I had never missed a Christmas until and, my last And there are people in the military right now going, 20 years, how is that possible? Exactly, I'm, and I'm one of them. I'm still trying to figure out how that happened uh, until, until my last deployment. Uh, we were, it was, uh, it was a non-combat deployment. So that was a good thing. Uh, we, I went to Sicily and then when, when it was announced that we were doing the deployment, uh, I was counting on the calendar cause I knew it was going to be a six month deployment. And I thought, crud, I'm going to miss Christmas. Uh, and so that was the only one, the last one, the very last deployment I did, we we're going to miss Christmas. And, and the kids were bummed about it and I was bummed about it. And everybody was bummed about it. Um, but I will tell you, Andrew, um, Christmas is one day. It was, it was one day and I, and I didn't want to be home for that day, but I'll tell you for that six months, do you want to take a guess which day of the week was the absolute hardest day of the week for me? The entire six months that I was away from home, it was Saturday mornings. Mm -hmm. I missed that. Well, I would have given up the next three Christmases 
to have gotten three of those days during that, during that six months because there was a growing there. This is not a how-to book. So I can't tell couples, this is how you grow. <laughs> I can't tell you, do this endeavor and that's how you're going to grow. What I do tell people in the book is find that thing or those things where it's just you two so that you can talk about the big things, you can talk about the small things, and you can talk about the medium things, and you can grow during that time period. It is, we still do it to this day. We, and now that I'm kind of semi-retired, uh, we do it actually a little more often. There are times where I actually can go to lunch now or, or do some other things, and I love every single second of it, and it took me a long time to grasp onto that. Yeah, so let's, let's get to the, to the, the third. Yeah. The, or, uh, sorry, the, yeah, the fourth. Okay. Yeah. And that one is even, even more esoteric. What does that exactly look like to become one? I wish I could tell you. I, I don't know what that looks like. I know how it's defined uh, in scripture, that idea of, of, of uh, no longer being two individual people, but becoming one. Um, that is the goal that we're, that we're looking for. That is the essence of what it is. I don't know what I would do without my wife. I don't know what I would do if I were not married to her. Now, that doesn't mean I've given up completely my, my individuality. I haven't placed all of that pressure on her because I can tell you what it's not. It's not her meeting my every need all the time, every time I want it. That is not what the idea of becoming one is because she's never going to do that, just like I'm never going to do that for her. We are not designed We are not designed so that our spouse will complete us. We're designed that God can complete us but she compliments me in a way that no other human being on the planet, including my kids can do. It's not bad or wrong. It's just different. There's no way in the world. There's another human being out there like Kimberly for me. And that's that idea and understanding that we are one, and especially as we go closer to, to God, as long as our, as our relationship with God individually continues to get stronger, we can't help but to be drawn closer together. So again, the last two, growth and, and, and becoming one, this idea of bonding and becoming one, they're a little more difficult to look at and point and say, here's A, B, and C, and D, and that's how you know you're one. Here's A, B, C, and D, do these, and this is how you're growing. I give some outlines in the, in, in the book on what that looks like in the processes of how you get there. Um, but it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a thing where, you know, it's kind of hard to define, but you know it when you see it. Uh, it this, that is very much the case here with this one. Yeah. And I mean, this is the thing is that we're, we're just touching the surface of this book. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I said was that I found this book to be extremely practical, very accessible lots and lots of good foundations to, to give the right presuppositions that you need for marriage. That's the biggest thing that, I mean, and you know this because my daughter just got married and I asked you if I can get a copy for her yes. to make sure that my kids get these principles, the presuppositions that you lay out in your book, I think are what makes it so invaluable. Yeah if people have those right presuppositions about marriage and having it written in such a practical, accessible way, then it becomes something that I think every marriage will benefit from. I don't care what stage they are in their marriage. There are some people that think there's no way my marriage could be repaired at this point. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Absolutely. It can. It's a change of thinking and you may not want to do that, but that's the reality. You you need to change your thinking to, to do that. And a lot of people don't want to do that. 
So after this break, let's, I want to get to talking uh, briefly about the seminars you have and what's going on over at Growth Project Radio. In this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 The word propitiation, as used in this verse, is one of my personal favorite words in all of the Bible. John Piper, in his book, 50 Reasons Why Christ Came to Die, defines propitiation as, quote, the removal of God's wrath by providing a substitute. The substitute is provided by God himself. The substitute, Jesus Christ, does not just cancel the wrath. He absorbs it and diverts it from us to himself. God's wrath is just, and it was spent, not withdrawn, end quote. This very explanation of propitiation is what God used to open my eyes and heart to the gospel. Do you know Jesus as your propitiation? This has been another growing moment with Robert Houghton. The good news is Striving for Eternity would love to come to your church to spend two days with your folks teaching them biblical hermeneutics. That's right, the art and science of interpreting scripture. The bad news is somebody attending might be really upset to discover Jeremiah 29.11 should not be their life verse. To learn more, go to strivingforeternity.org to host a Bible interpretation made easy seminar in your area. All right, so Dr. Purvis, let's talk about these marriage seminars that you do because that son that really was came out uh, from your time in the Navy and then son you're doing at the church down there. So let's talk about those. What you what are you doing with it? When's the next one? Uh, we are working on that now. We had our first one uh, late last year. Uh, if you want, you know, if any of your folks want to go to. Uh, uh, www.growthproject.org. There's some information there under the uh, under the marriage tab. That's where we're going to put uh, the information for when we have the next one. But one of the interesting things that we've done there, we actually had some folks who uh, went on camera and did some uh, uh, testimonials about what they what they thought about the um, uh, the marriage r- retreat or seminar, whatever whatever terminology you know people want to use. Either one's fine with me. Um, and and many of these couples, they had been married for a very long time. Uh, one of the things that I was hoping to do when it was over with uh, was that th- to hear the, the 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 phrase that I wanted to hear more than anything else was this isn't what I thought it was going to be and that's sometimes not a good thing and in, in this particular case it was uh, it it is a little different probably I think it is a little different than the folks who who went to it said the same thing you know I've been to the ones who went to some of these other the other ones and that's not to say the other ones aren't good they're great um, but I just didn't want to do the same thing that other people were doing and so uh, we're looking at it more from a foundational standpoint I, inter- I introduce um, personality and how personality plays a role uh, in that we don't just do the marriage the marriage period is actually uh, just one small part of the overall seminar uh, it's actually the last part on Saturday, um, uh, but everything else we look at it from a biblical standpoint, the biblical bases for um, for conflict in marriage, um, uh, just a whole number of things. There's actually a little thing on the on the web page there that will show you kind of what we cover, some of the topics and things that we cover. Uh, we are working on uh, setting up the, the next one. Actually, I'd like to do two this year uh, if I could. Uh, we are also amenable to taking it on the road. Uh, if, if anybody would be interested in having us come to, uh, to their area, to their church and, and put it on, we, we are certainly amenable to doing something like that. I really would like to see where we're doing these probably at least four to five times a year. 
uh, and uh, it covers just about anything you could possibly imagine uh, having to do with marriage, including the marriage pyramid. We end up on Sunday morning talking about forgiveness and what that, again, we have we even a term like forgiveness, which we, we should have, the, as believers, should have the market cornered on. We still, when it comes to forgiving other people, have a tendency to think how the world looks at forgiveness as opposed to uh, to what God's word has to say. But it's really a cool weekend uh, and uh, people love it. They, uh, I knew that when I, when I got finished with the Navy and I'd done that last year and a half doing nothing but, but marriage retreats, I knew I wanted to integrate that into what I was going to do after I got out of the Navy and, and have been able to do that and want to do more of it. Uh, so we, we we're excited about it and, uh, and hopefully we'll have one planned here pretty soon. All right. And then some other stuff. Some, if you've been hearing in the commercials, as I sometimes play, it's probably the first episode where I played both on justification and the one for, on uh, propitiation, both from Robert Hoden. He is your, your co-host over there at the Growth Project Radio. So what's happening with that? First off, folks, if you don't subscribe to the podcast uh, for Growth Project Radio, you should. Um, I jokingly said they actually have two. They have the longer one. And then there's one it's called and help me with this. The name of it is five minutes, five minutes of truth, five minutes of truth. Yeah. yeah to an accurate, a more accurate title would be approximately five minutes. That's right. <laughs> I always joke. I always, I always tweet that out or put it on Facebook. I go the best eight minutes of five minutes of truth. That's exactly right. Yeah. It usually goes a little, few minutes beyond, uh, beyond five minutes. We try. I have my, I have my rap report daily and it is always exactly two minutes long Monday through Friday. Oh it's man. Like- I wish I had your discipline. I, I can't do that. <laughs> I mean, if I say it's going to be two minutes, I want it to be two minutes, but, but both of those podcasts are available. So check both of them out. What's going on over at the growth project radio. Oh, it's really cool. We're, we're having a lot of fun over there. Growth project radio is a part of growthproject.org. It's one of the, the ways we, we our, our whole goal. When, when Robert and I first began talking about this a little over a year ago, can't believe it's been just a year. It seems like it's, it's just flown by, but, uh, um, and a lot of things have happened. We, uh, we went from it just being kind of a question and answer video thing for a little Facebook group that we, we started and then it, it kind of exploded out from there. Uh, and, uh, so we, we do a podcast that, and we will record it. Uh, we actually, we actually broadcast it live right now. We're probably going to put an end to that pretty soon and then, and then transfer it into a, into a podcast, but we release that every Tuesday. Uh, and if, if, you know, if people are interested in looking live when we do it, we do it from eight o'clock, uh, to nine o'clock on, uh, on Facebook live. And, and, uh, uh, we, we cover, we, we, the whole goal in all in growth project, hence the reason for the name, um, is that we have a, a desperate lack of understanding of God's word among evangelicals of all things. So if there's any group of people that should not be a problem with it should be us but but unfortunately it uh, it hasn't worked out that way and one of my favorite phrases to use from a from a theological standpoint that we are you know for the most part a mile wide and an inch deep theologically uh, we mine the bible for quotes but we really don't seek out the depth of its truths and so robert and i were, we prayed about this we talked about it what how, what can we do virtually what can we do leveraging technology we have uh, at our fingertips now to try to help as many people grow as possible hence the name of the uh, of the organization almost everything that we do is poured through the filter is how is this going to grow a believer how is this going to, and I'm not talking about people knowing more about God. Anybody can learn about God. How do we, how do we help people know him better? 
uh, and uh, and so Growth Project Radio is just one part of that. We are right now doing a, uh, an introduction to the entire New Testament. We're just we're hitting the books and we're we're hitting some highlights from those books. Not in any real depth that I would like to, obviously, because it would take forever. Um, but but we do that. Uh, so we'll pick specific books of the Bible. We'll go through that. Sometimes we'll pick topics. Uh, and, and, and go through that for a few weeks. So it always is kind of changed. There is no one thing that we do uh, except trying to get people to grow in him. That, that is the first the reason we do the marriage retreat uh, and, and seminars is so that people will grow in him. So everything is kind of, is kind of poured through that filter. I'm really excited uh, about uh, uh, we're, we're starting this, uh, another aspect of, of growth project. Um, and hopefully in the fall is when we're looking for it. We wanted to do it last fall. I had no idea how much it involved this was going to be, or I wouldn't have you know, written a check, check my body couldn't cash um, last, last year, uh, but by this fall, uh, to actually have some discipleship classes uh, available uh, for folks about specific topics, things like that, that we want to have. We're going to record them and have them available uh, in, a, in, a, in a, almost a classroom-like uh, format uh, complete with, with all the things that you would normally have. I, I am so tired of, of people who should know better, uh, in positions of leadership and positions of teaching and preaching, dumbing down this stuff. We've got to stop doing this. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the old Testament says that my people perish for lack of knowledge. It never says my people perish because they have too much knowledge. So we, we want to make sure that we're getting as much of that information out there as possible while always making it accessible. That's the word you hear with us over and over and over again. I've actually heard people, I've actually heard pastors stand up in the pulpit and say, well, you know, I'm no theologian. I'm thinking, what? Yeah, you are. So is every single believer on the planet. If you're a believer, you're a theologian. The only question is whether you're an effective one or not. That's and true. so we, we have to make sure we understand these things. Uh, and so we're doing, we're doing whatever small part we can to, to make that happen. So we've got some stuff on the horizon there. Uh, another, actually I'm working on a devotional now, kind of a, um, uh, what's the, it's kind of a hybrid uh, devotional Bible study based on the five minutes of truth. Uh, topics that I've brought up, and hopefully we'll have that published by the end of March at the latest. So we got a lot of cool stuff going on. Yeah, you know, the Growth Project Radio encouraged me to do something I've been wanting to do for a while, which is you're doing kind of a survey through the New Testament. I do always laugh when you guys say you're going to do three books. Yeah, I know you're that not. Doesn't, yeah, that doesn't always work out. I mean, just <laughs> for the record, just for the record, I mean, I am going through. I started from the Old Testament, and. I've, I'm going through daily. Uh, so I'm going through that survey just two minutes every day with a book. Mm. I still think I will be done with the entire Bible before you finish the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, we have a tendency to bite off just a little more than we can chew. And uh, I, I know in one particular night, we were supposed to do three and we got one done. So it was, uh, yeah, no, then, we, then we just completely ditched the three and now we're trying to keep it at two. And that's a, that's a little more manageable. Well, granted, I mean, you are uh, getting into way more depth than I get into in two minutes, but I am doing them five days a week, yeah. so I am knocking them off kind of quicker, but, uh, but it, is, it is good to have people have an understanding of the books of the Bible, and just so you know, here's the context of it, because this is not something that we should be reading the way many people unfortunately read, is the way they do with a daily bread. I'll grab a verse here for today, figure something of what it means to me and feel better about my day. No, we should be reading it in context. And to do that, we should have an understanding of what the book is about. That's exactly right. 
and I think that's why what you're doing, what you're doing is so good. I mean, that's, it's, it's laying out that foundation in the New Testament. So, yeah, uh, we, we have a, we have a, uh, you know, we, we do, we do some basics. Um, we do themes and then we pick out a few selected verses or events in that book that, that's unique uh, to that particular book. And that, that's sort of the format that we follow for each one. And so it gives enough information that I think there are a lot of people who will listen to it who've even, who are believers and maybe have been believers for a while who will say, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that was in there. Or, I didn't know it talked about that. Uh, or I didn't, I didn't know that about the, about the circumstances under which it was written or whatever the case may be. And so I, I'm hoping it's helpful. Um, I wish, I wish we had the time to go into the depth that, that I would like to, but that's what the classes are in the fall for. We're going to be more, uh, we're going to be more intentional about that and, and ended up with a lot more depth as far as that's concerned. All right. Well, folks, go out. I will have a link to purchase the book, The Marriage Pyramid, in the show notes. And I will give you, I'll put some links in for Growth Project Radio. I encourage you to get the book. Even if you're not married, this is an excellent book to get before marriage. So you enter into marriage on good footings. Mm -hmm. You want to have that foundation and that mindset right ahead of time. It will actually help you more if you're not married to get a copy of this book and go through it. So that is something I'd encourage you to do. And I'd say to this as well, if you are married and you say, I just, it's, it's over, it's done, it's too late. No, it's not. Yeah. That, can, that can easily be changed. It's a, it's a mindset that you have to have. This book gives that. So I would encourage you to pick up a copy of The Marriage Pyramid and also subscribe to Growth Project Radio and 5 Minutes of Truth so you can get the different teachings that are going on over there with Growth Project Radio. And, oh, and Andrew, we are, we're, I'm going to send you three copies uh, of the book and you, you dole them out however, however you see fit, but uh, they, they will be on their way. Well, how we're going to do that? That's a good segue. The way, so the way we're going to do that is the same way we've been doing with the other books that we're giving away. If you share this episode with hashtag rap report, that's rap with two P's, R-A-P-P report. If you share this episode, whether it be Twitter, on Facebook, whatever social media you want, we're going to search through those. We will choose Three winners, since there'll be three books, and you will get those if you are the winner. So the more often you share it, by the way, the more chances you have to enter. So how badly do you want the book for free? And then if you get it for free, my encouragement is for you to go and buy a case of them to give away. You know, everyone loves gifts, just saying. Absolutely. So, <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. I think it is. So, you know, hey, folks, for your church, you could buy a case for your church, talk to whoever, your treasurer, whoever, and say, maybe we make this as a Christmas gift for the church. And, you know, people like to do Christmas in June. Absolutely. So. Sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> well, Danny, it's always great talking with you. Hey, great having you on. I appreciate it. Any last words you want to share with folks? Uh, the honor's all mine, uh, Andrew. I appreciate it. I, I have gotten to, to, um, in dealing with so many people who, who are struggling so much at this and, and looking at how precious marriage is, I have come to actually not just love being married, of course, being loved, but now God has developed such, just such a love for marriage that I don't think I ever really had before. I knew I had love for my marriage, but just the idea of, of, of loving marriage and wanting it so, wanting so desperately for people to look at it the way that, uh, the way we were intended to look at it. And, uh, 
in whatever way we can do that. And, and, to, and to echo what you said before, uh, I have seen the most dire circumstances under which people uh, have gone in, in their marriages and, and seen them not only survive, but actually survive and thrive. It's not over. Um, it, it's not. It, it, it can be helped. I, I really believe that with, with every fiber in my being. All right. So folks, check these resources out. You'll see them in the show notes until next week. We didn't have time to do the spiritual transition game. I was going to be curious to see what Danny would give me on that, but uh, <laughs> we'll have to see next time when we get him on to find that out. So, Absolutely. So folks, I hope that uh, this encourages you in your marriage or future marriage or even in your struggles in marriage that may give you some things to think about. Until next week, remember to strive to make today an eternal day for the glory of God. This podcast is part of the Striving for Eternity ministry. For more content or to request a speaker or seminar to your church, go to strivingforeternity.org.